You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network. Good morning. It's a blessing to be here. That was a fantastic presentation by Kent Hovind, I want to say. I'm totally blessed. It's the first time I've been able to see him speak, and uh, I thank Kent for his ministry. It's awesome. Uh, what kind of doctor am I? Well, MD means mentally deficient, uh, as you know. And uh, I graduated from medical school in 1984, a convinced evolutionist. I went to UC San Diego School of Medicine, which has some of the uh, most famous, uh, famous atheists uh, with Nobel Prizes around. And uh, graduated a convinced atheist. I was... Um, uh, able to hold the entire human body in my hand during anatomy classes. I've dissected every organ, held every organ in my hand, and I remember thinking, holding the brain in my hand, wow, billions of years of random molecular collisions produced this thing. Incredible. And I graduated from medical school and went on to do my residency as a family physician. And after completing my residency in family practice, I was on fire for a BMW and a tax problem. And uh, I was $150,000 in debt. My education, I got $150,000 in student loans. And I was going through quite a significant stress. A lot of, uh, God had allowed a lot of chaos, tumult uh, in my life, pain and suffering. And a Christian nurse at the hospital gave me a, a tape series by uh, Dr. A.E. Wildersmith, who is a uh, British professor that Pastor Chuck Smith flew to the United States to speak at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I was $150,000 in debt, and the foundation of a medical education is the biological sciences, and the foundation of the biological sciences is the theory of evolution. So I took that 50-cent plastic cassette tape, stuck it in the tape machine, sat down in my chair, put my feet up on the, on the rail, hit the play button. Before I switched that tape to side B, Dr. Wildersmith had wiped out the foundation of an education that cost me $150,000. With a 50-cent plastic cassette tape. Boy, was I ticked. Since that time, I've been uh, studying evidence for creation and apologetics. I've done a lot of speaking and writing and traveling around the country and I have a website called Mars Hill. Mars Hill is the place where Paul the Apostle gave his defense of the gospel. It's where he told the Greeks about the unknown God, Mars Hill, the Areopagus in Greek. And on my website, I have lots and lots of articles on the origin of the universe, the origin of life, the origin of species. Lots of articles that you can read um, that are, um, uh, will help you understand uh, why we didn't happen by chance. Many people have asked me, well, what was that tape that Dr. Wildersmith did that convinced you and so I decided okay I'm going to start carrying it so I actually have it on my uh, on my book table I have a CD-ROM by Dr. Wildersmith called Evolution versus Creation which was the tape that was given to me 13 years ago well this morning I'm going to I'm going to do a study called DNA Evolution's Death Knell the book of Romans chapter 1 verse 18 through 20 says this for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress 
the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known about God is evident within them, for God has made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, literally the cosmos there, his invisible attributes, God's invisible nature, his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly seen. How? Being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. Paul the Apostle says, when you look at the things that are made, when you look at the cosmos, when you look at a newborn baby, when you look at a 300-foot-tall redwood tree, when you look at the things that are made, that the evidence of a creator, a designer, is evident in the things that are made, so much so that we are without excuse. As I said, I did not always believe that. I was a convinced evolutionist at one time. I was completely and absolutely blinded by the public school systems teaching all the way through college and medical school that science actually supported the DNA molecule. Well, in the last several years, as I said, I've been doing a lot of studying and a lot of teaching on the issue of creation. And for me, the DNA molecule is probably the most powerful evidence, indeed, that there is a creator for the DNA molecule and even a information scientist, God himself, behind the structure and the coded information in the DNA molecule. There are two different ideas about how life got here. The intelligent design formula, formula says that matter plus energy plus information, concept, blueprints, know-how, biochemical expertise was applied to matter in order to produce living systems. The evolutionary formula says that matter plus energy plus chance chemistry, the undirected combining and uncombining of molecules in some primordial soup billions of years ago gave rise to all of the complex molecules, the proteins, the DNA, the RNA, the lipids, all of the complex molecules in our systems, all of life systems, by chance, with no biochemical expertise applied to the chemical quagmire. And that's how they produce life. Well, which of these formulas is true? Well, in order to determine which is the more plausible, because you can't go back in time and prove it by doing a uh, time machine experiment, we have to look at the nature of life, the nature of living systems, the nature of DNA, and say, what does real science tell us about the nature of these things, and therefore their more plausible origin? I was invited to speak at um, a university in Southern California, one of the University of California schools. I was invited by the um, head of the evolution, uh, head of the uh, Bible uh, study groups, and they sent out hundreds and hundreds of flyers around the campus, and they sent flyers to the professors' mailboxes that said that this doctor was going to come and do a talk called uh, "The Mystery of Life's Origin: The Great Debate." They put no indication on the flyer that it was a Christian study. And so I get there, and it's a pretty big building, it's a pretty big a hall, and there's several hundred students show up, and as I'm setting up, the guy that was running it says, you're not going to believe this, but there's a whole bunch of atheist professors here. And I said, all right, we're going to have fun. And so I began talking about the nature of the things that are made. I began talking about the nature of living systems. I spoke in depth about the structure of the DNA molecule. Of course, DNA molecule, deoxyribonucleic acid, was discovered, the structure was deciphered in 1953 by James Watson and Francis Crick, 
but it really wasn't made famous until 1994 by O.J. Simpson. <laughs> and I pointed out that the DNA molecule consists of two chains of building blocks called nucleotides, very complicated molecules called nucleotides, that are bonded to, into each other end to end. And then two of these chains, tens of millions of nucleotide uh, building blocks long, are then bonded together and then twisted like a ladder that's twisted on itself. Deoxyribonucleic acid. The DNA molecule is uh, coiled and then supercoiled into packets called uh, chromosomes, which are in the nucleus uh, of all cells on uh, living systems on planet Earth. It is the molecule that stores all of the instructions and all of the information necessary to code for all of the functions and produce all of the structures in all living systems. It's an information storage molecule. In a human being, there are six billion nucleotides, according to the recently completed Human Genome Project, and in E. coli bacteria, there are about three million nucleotides, the building blocks of DNA. I already said that. They're combined together in the double spiral, spiral helix, and they carry the instructions to produce all of the structures and control all of the functions in all living systems. Now, in order for organisms to make copies of themselves, they have to have a mechanism to copy the DNA. If a cell is going to have baby cells, it has to figure out a way to make a copy of itself. To do that, DNA has a fantastic ability of duplication. DNA requires about 20 different proteins, enzymes, to make a copy of it. The information on the DNA molecule is then translated to a molecule called RNA, where the information on the RNA is then translated into the production of proteins. And proteins are the stuff of what we're made. It's the thing that makes up our skin, our hair, bones, teeth, most of the Structural parts of your organs and bodies are produced by structural proteins. And then there are what are called functional proteins, which are the proteins that accomplish most of your chemical reactions in your body. And so to copy DNA requires proteins, and to get the information off of the DNA translated to proteins requires proteins. So you have to have DNA and proteins in order for the information on the DNA to be ultimately translated into useful information. Now. I pointed out to the students that the DNA molecule, according to the biochemists at this university, at this very university, if you go to a biochemist and ask them about the structure of the building blocks of DNA and the DNA itself, a knowledgeable molecular biologist, a knowledgeable biochemist will admit to you that today's biochemical expertise or know-how is insufficient to produce the building blocks and even the DNA molecule from the presumed conditions of the early Earth. In other words, today biochemists cannot even make a DNA molecule using their best biochemical know-how. I told the students, I want you to leave the biochemistry department, go across campus, over to the biology department, and ask the evolutionary biologists, where did this molecule come from that is so complicated that our biochemists cannot even synthesize it, and they will tell you that it arose by the random combining and uncombining of chemicals in a primordial soup billions of years ago. So incredibly intelligent chemists can't produce it, but it arose by chance in primordial goo. In effect, it arose from the goo to you by way of the zoo over three billion years. It's basically an accident. 
So one department in that university will tell you they can't even synthesize a DNA molecule, and the other department says it happens by chance. Bit of a disconnect there, don't you think? Now, the DNA molecule, that's the hardware we've talked about a little bit. The, the G- DNA molecule carries software. It's the genetic code. It's the coded instructions that code for the production and control all the functions of your organs in your body. First of all, the genetic code is digital. That is, that is, it's expressible in discrete mathematical terms. Next, the DNA code is error correcting. There are a half a dozen known levels of error correction. For example, when a DNA molecule makes a copy of itself and produces two daughter molecules, there are two proteins for you students, DNA polymerase 2 and 3, that goes along and feels the newly produced daughter molecule. And if it finds an incorrectly placed building block, it pulls it out and puts the correct one in. So it's an error-correcting digital information storage and retrieval system. Next, the genetic code is redundant. There are segments of DNA, they're called genes, that are so important that there are sometimes two or three backup copies in the genetic code of an animal. So that if an error occurs in the primary gene, it goes undetected, that primary gene is turned off and the backup gene is turned on. It's another form of error correction. Next, the information is overlapping. There are segments of DNA that can actually code for the production of more than one protein and then therefore control more than one function. Imagine a a string of letters in the English language, a hundred letters long. And you put the spaces at a determined place and it spells out, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, on out for a hundred letters. You then squish the letters together, keeping them in the same sequence, and you change the spaces between the letters to a different place, and you begin reading at a different place in the uh, sequence of the letters, and it spells out, Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Same sequence of letters gives two intelligible sentences. That's exactly what the DNA molecule does. There are segments of DNA that if you begin reading at, say, building block number one in code to, say, building block number 100, it'll produce one type of protein that has one function. And then you move down a little bit and, say, start coding at nucleotide number 25 and go to, say, 125, you get an entirely different protein. So the information is overlapping. Next, the information is semantic. That means it possesses grammar, syntax, and punctuation. I did a study like this down in uh, Southern California at a Calvary Chapel and a gentleman who's a senior programmer of a a high-tech firm down in San Diego came up to me and he said, this is unbelievable. What you've shared with us here is is among the most complicated types of information storage systems that we computer scientists work on. This is an incredibly complicated, taking thousands and thousands of man hours of programming time to produce such a coding system. A fertilized human egg is about the size of a pinhead. It contains enough information to fill 1,000 books, 500 pages thick with print so small you would need a microscope to read it. That's how much information is is in a uh, fertilized egg to produce a copy of you. If all of the DNA chemical letters in the human body, all of your 100 trillion cells, were printed in books with a Times Roman font size of 12, you could fill the Grand Canyon 50 times with the books that could be produced by the information in your DNA molecules. 
It's an incredibly, incredibly large amount of information in your DNA molecules. It's a fertilized egg. Next, the information is what is called complex. And the information is what is called specific. Complex information means that... Let me give you an example of complex information. If you were to blindfold yourself and begin typing randomly at a computer keyboard, you would produce a sequence of letters that it would be virtually impossible to reproduce ever in the history of the universe. Try it. Try typing randomly with your eyes uh, covered on a keyboard. It's a complex series of letters that could never be reproduced. The mathematics are, each keystroke is one chance of, of 26 if you're just looking at the 26 letters of the alphabet. And so complex information is information that is extremely complicated and extremely difficult to repeat. Now, specific information is information which possesses a specific meaning. The typing on the keyboard with your eyes closed would not produce uh, specific information. It would just produce gobbledygook, which is complicated, but it wouldn't specify any special meaning. But specific information is meaning which has a specific meaning. And the DNA molecule is both complex and specific. Specific information would be, for example, if you set a monkey in front of a computer and had them type, they would produce mostly gobbledygook, but occasionally you might see the word D-O-G, C-A-T, A-N-D, etc. That information is specific because it has a specific meaning that we assign to those sequences. Now, the thing about the DNA molecule is it is both specific and complex. So that if you put a monkey in front of a typewriter or a computer and let him type for millions of years, he's never going to have the ability to produce both complicated and specific information. It's absolutely impossible, and I'll talk to you about that a little bit later, the mathematics behind that. And so the genetic code is an incredibly complex, digital, error-correcting, redundant, overlapping, complex, and highly specific information storage and retrieval system. And it is the type of system which is incredibly complicated in the computer science field. Now, the Human Genome Project recently finished determined that there were only 30,000 genes in the human genetic code. I'm skeptical about that. Imagine there's a lot more. But what was startling about that statement was they said that that was far too little information to create a human being if it was read linearly, step-by-step, step, like reading a book. It's not enough information to produce you and me. So the question is, how do you make a baby? I don't, you know what I mean. I mean, not, I mean, how do you, how do you, I mean, not that. I'm talking about how do you make a baby from, you know, the, the sperm and the egg coming together? During the development of a human embryo, after that egg is fertilized, thousands of different sets of genes are turned on and off, producing different types of cells. This process occurs for several months until the complexity, until the completely formed cell type and organ, organ are produced. Like the instruments of an orchestra, each gene, think of each gene as an orchestral instrument, like the instruments of an orchestra, the hundreds of genetic instruments are turned on and off differently in different arrangements in different ways in the different cell types, thus producing a large number of different cell types, dozens and dozens and dozens of different cell types in a human embryo. Now, 
Each cell type requires a different set of genes to be turned on and off in different sequences to produce the different organ systems. The, produce, the production of a human infant is akin to dozens of orchestras playing dozens of different tunes for nine months. 30,000 instruments to choose from, all directed by the same director. Now that's some talented director, wouldn't you say? So it's an unbelievably, unbelievably complicated orchestration of those 30,000 genes turning on and off in the different cell types, turning on and off at different times to cause the production of a heart cell or a muscle cell or a liver or a brain or a kidney cell, all from those same 30,000 genes. Now, the question is, where did this digital error-correcting, overlapping, redundant, semantic, uh, complex, and specific information storage and retrieval system come from? I talked to the students at this university. I said, go to the evolutionary biology department. Ask them, where did this system come from? And they will tell you that it, too, arose by chance. No computer program, no computer programmer, no information, no thought, no concept to produce this highly complicated code. Now, I said, students, I want you to leave the biology department. Go to the computer science department, which most biologists don't know where that department is. They've never been there. And ask a computer scientist, ask a freshman in the computer sciences department, where does information come from? And they will tell you that according to the principles of information science, information arises only by intelligent, intelligent contrivance. Chance, they will tell you, is the opposite of information. For you scientists or students, chance is the thermodynamic opposite of information. When a computer scientist writes a computer code or a program or invents a new computer language, they do everything they can to make sure that chance plays no role in the development of code or program. Chance is destructive to existing codes and programs, and every computer scientist knows that the chance strumming of a keyboard will never produce information. And language systems are devised by at least two intelligent beings using arbitrary, that is, agreed upon rules and regulations. Now, think about what Paul said. Paul said that the invisible attributes of God, even the eternal Godhead, is seen in the things that are made. The genetic code, because it's a language convention, must be an agreement between at least two intelligences that a certain sequence means a certain thing. So I think we actually see the plurality of God's nature seen in a genetic code. Now, let me illustrate the point. Let's say you and I want to invent a new language. And we decide that ugh means I'll meet you at the malt shop. And we decide that nug means okay, I'll meet you there. And we decide that lug means I'm buying. And we're in a room like this. And I stand up over there and I say, Ugh! Now everybody in the room thinks that I'm choking or in pain, except you. You're in the back and you stand up and you say, Nug! And then I stand up and I say, Lug! And you get a big smile on your face and we go out the side door. You know that we're going to the malt shop and Mark is buying. Everybody else is going, What? What are those two knuckleheads doing? What's the problem? The problem is you don't have a knowledge of the language rules 
regulations and conventions. Information requires rules and regulations according to interpret the sequences. The meaning of any sequence of letters, beads on a string, sounds of one voice, is assigned by at least two intelligent beings. That is, we hang or assign meaning to the sequences of what information storage system we're using. You can use knots on a rope, beads on a string, iron atoms on a floppy disk. There are cultures today that are still in existence that use uh, knots tied on strings. Hubby comes home at night. There's several strings hanging from the door. He feels the sequence of the strings. Johnny needs a new pair of shoes. Betty scraped her knee. And my wife is pregnant with her fifth child. What? All transmitted by a predetermined language convention which is carried by knots on a string. Chance, information scientists will tell you, is the opposite of information and will not produce information storage systems. So we assign meaning to sequences. Those of you that know German know that, well, those of you that know English know that gift means a present in English. The word gift is a word that we assign that meaning to. I'm going to give you a gift. Well, if you go to Germany and tell somebody that you're going to give them a gift, it means you're going to poison them. The same sequence of letters means different things. Why? Because the meaning is not inherent in the sequences. The sequence does not possess meaning. We assign meaning to sequences. So randomly produced keystrokes, randomly produced DNA molecules would not possess information. That's only one part of the step. You have to have a language system by which you interpret the sequences in order to transmit meaning. Everybody can see this sequence, dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, dot, dot. It's a relatively ordered sequence of dots and dashes, but not everybody in the room knows what it means. In order to know what it means, Everybody sees the pattern, but you have to have a language convention called the Morse code to interpret the sequences. Dot, 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 dash, 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 dot, 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 S-O-S. Help! I got a flat tire! It means help. It's the universal signal of peril. The dots and the dashes don't possess meaning. We assign meaning to the sequences. So even if a monkey could type some meaningful sequences, they would not possess real meaning until we assign meaning to the sequences randomly produced. So where there is information and where there is meaning, there must be a mind because it requires a mind to assign meaning to the sequences. Sir Frederick Hoyle, a British astronomer and mathematician who was knighted by the Queen of England for his research in mathematics and astronomy, applied his knowledge of mathematics to the DNA molecule back in the late 70s and early 80s. And he said this, the notion that not only the biopolymers, that is the DNA and the proteins, but the operating program of a living cell could be arrived at by chance in a primordial soup here on Earth is evidently nonsense of a high order. Quite a few of my astronomical friends are considerable mathematicians, and once they become interested enough to calculate for themselves instead of relying on hearsay argument, they can quickly see this point. New Scientist, Volume 92, page 527. The molecules are not going to rise by chance, and neither is the information. I went to the website, www.seti.org, which is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, 
And I went to their website and they said what they're doing is they're using these, uh, these radio telescopes around the world, searching the microwave band of radiation, and they're looking for non-random, non-random repeating digital sequences in the microwave band of radiation. If they find such a signal, they'll confirm it with other stations. And once they find this signal and they announce it to the world, that this signal is evidence of intelligence out there in space. Aliens sending us a message. Folks, the genetic code is the very kind of message that they're looking for. A digital, non-random, repeating sequence. So if they just take these telescopes and turn them around and point them at their heads, they'd see the kind of signal that they're looking for. But yet this same website goes on to say that because life on Earth arose by chance over billions of years, and because there are planets that are billions of years older, we believe that there's likely intelligent life that's quite older than that on planet Earth. It doesn't make sense. Let's talk about the evolutionists' idea about how life arose. They call it spontaneous generation. The new word is abiogenesis. They believe that life arose by the undirected combining and uncombining of non-living chemicals somewhere on the primitive Earth. The theory goes that the primitive Earth had a much different atmosphere consisting of methane, ammonia, water vapor, and hydrogen gas, and that energy from the sun, lightning bolts, geothermal vents combined with these molecules to produce the building blocks of life. This theory was tested in 1953 by Miller and Urey. Stanley Miller was a chemist at my university, UCSD, where I uh, did my medical training. And what he did was he passed a, uh, he made a series of glass flasks where he passed these four gases, uh, methane, ammonia, water vapor, and hydrogen gas. And he had a, um, uh, an electrode, that, uh, two tungsten electrodes in which he uh, sparked this uh, gas that was being uh, circulated through the chambers. And he collected the information, collected the molecules that were produced by it. After about a week, it produced sort of a reddish, uh, gooey, uh, slimy uh, soup on the bottom. He collected it. He did it uh, the first time and produced no molecules that were relevant to life. He produced no amino acids, no nucleotides, nothing. He, then using a knowledge of biochemistry, tweaked the experimental conditions, redid the experiment, ran it for a week again, and he was able to produce a couple of important things. First of all, he produced 85% tar. Yep, that's the stuff they make streets out of. Now, that's not important to human life. If you eat tar, it'll kill you. Tar is basically long chains of carbon molecules, carbon atoms. Next, he produced 13% carboxylic acids, which are complex acids containing carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, etc., that these 13% acids are not relevant or found in living systems. Now, it turns out that if he were to drink the mixture that he made, it would kill him because these carboxylic acids will bind to your enzymes in your body and, and cause them to be gummed up and you're dead within six minutes. Well, he also produced some alanine, which is an amino acid found in living systems, and he produced some glycine and a few trace amounts of aspartic acid, glutamic acid, beta-alanine, and other amino acids. But he did it not by chance. He did it by using a knowledge of biochemistry and physical chemistry. So what's interesting is he didn't use the evolutionary formula. He used the creation formula. He took matter and energy and applied chemical know-how. And what did he produce? A couple of the building blocks of life. So what did he prove? That it takes chemical know-how to produce the building blocks of life. That's what he, that's what he proved. Now, 
There's a couple of problems. Whoops. My computer's doing something funny here. Kind of doing a slow transition. Robert Shapiro, who uh, is a uh, chemist from University of New York at Stony Brook, wrote a book called Origins, A Skeptic's Guide to the Creation of Life on Earth in 1986. He is not a Christian. He's not a creationist. He said this about the experiment. He said, let us sum up. The experiment performed by Miller yielded tar as its most abundant product. There are about 50 small organic compounds that are called building blocks. Only two of these 50 occurred among the preferential Miller-Urey products. He went on to say this. He said the nucleotides, of the building blocks of DNA and RNA, have never been reported in any amounts in such sources. He's talking about spark and soup-like experiments. Yet, a mythology has emerged that maintains the opposite. I have seen several statements in scientific sources which claim that proteins and nucleic acids have themselves been prepared. These errors reflect the operation of an entire belief system. It's called atheism. He says, the facts do not support this belief. Such thoughts may be comforting to atheists, but they run far ahead of any experimental validation. Robert Shapiro, Origins, A Skeptic's Guide to the Creation of Life on Earth, 1986, page 108 and 109. So they haven't been able to produce even the building blocks of DNA using biochemical know-how. They cannot do it. Another problem with the Miller-Urey experiment is the fact that all of the amino acids, which are the building blocks of protein, and all of the nucleotides, which are the building blocks of DNA and RNA, occur in two forms. They occur in left-handed and in right-handed forms. It turns out that all of the proteins in your body possess left-handed amino acids, and all of the nucleotides, the building blocks of DNA and RNA, possess right-handed building blocks, nucleotides. Now, when Miller did his experiment, you know what he produced? A mixture of 50% left and 50% right-handed building blocks. Now, the problem is that will not function in order to produce the kind of proteins that you and I have. In order to produce a pure mixture of left-handed amino acids, left-handed uh, amino acids and left-handed proteins, it requires biochemical know-how. I'm a little ahead of my computer here. I already said that RNA and DNA are made of 100% left-handed or right-handed nucleotides. Now, to produce a protein in DNA, it's done by, built, by adding one amino acid or one nucleotide at a time to an ever-lengthening chain. In a primordial soup, and by the way, all of the chemists that have tried to repeat the Miller-Urey experiment, they always get the same thing. They get 50% left-handed and 50% right-handed building blocks, no matter what amino acids they produce. A primordial soup always contains 50-50. Here's the problem. If DNA and proteins were produced by the undirected random combining and lengthening of a chain, you have about a 50% chance of putting a left-handed amino acid or a right-handed nucleotide each time or the opposite for the next one. There's about a 50-50 chance that you'll do, if you're, if you're creating a, a protein or a DNA molecule out of such a soup, that you'll get a left or a right-handed building block. And yet, you are made of 100% pure left-handed amino acids and 100% pure right-handed building blocks. And if even one right-handed amino acid is inserted into the structure of a protein in your body, it can completely destroy its ability to function. This was not mentioned to me in college, folks. 
I had to learn this by reading the writings of A.E. Wildersmith and other creationists. They don't teach this to the young students in college. So the question is this. Chance or expertise? Chance chemistry will never produce or separate the right-handed and the left-handed building blocks. You can separate the building blocks, but you know what it requires? It requires biochemical expertise, know-how, which comes only from a mind. Next, let's talk about the mathematical odds of life arising by chance. Hubert Yockey is a physicist and an information scientist. And he has written a number of papers. He's considered to be the most uh, intelligent computer scientist uh, or, or information scientist alive today. He calculated the mathematical probability of a single protein called cytochrome C arising by chance as one chance in 2 times 10 to the 75th power. That's a 2 with 75 zeros after it. Sir Frederick Hoyle calculated the chance of the 2,000 proteins of a bacterium arising by chance as one chance in 10 to the 40,000th power. That's a 1 with 40,000 zeros after it. University, uh, Yale University chemist Harold Morowitz calculated the chance of a single bacterium arising by chance as one chance in 10 to the 100th billionth power. There isn't enough. There's the, 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 the number of atoms in the universe is only 10 to the 82nd power they think, the number of subatomic particles in the entire universe. Now, the question is, how big are these odds? Well, the, to win a state lottery, you have about a chance, uh, one chance in 10 million, roughly. One chance in 10 to the 7. The odds of winning the state lottery every single week of your life, from age 18 to 99, is one chance in 4.6 times 10 to the 29,120th power. The chance that a bacteria might arise by chance is one in ten, one to the ten billionth power. Now, according to the French statistician Emile Borel, he showed in 1943, when, exam, when examining questions of probability on a cosmic scale, that anything with a, uh, the odds that are worse than one chance in ten to the fiftieth, that it can be regarded as impossible. Impossible. Anything that has a mathematical, there's, in other words, there's not enough space. There's not enough time and there's not enough matter in the universe to even produce a single protein according to the odds of Hubert Yockey. Hubert Yockey said in his book, 1992 by Cambridge University Press, Information Theory and Molecular Biology on page 284, the belief that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter is simply a matter of faith in the strict reductionism and is based entirely on ideology, not on science. And Hubert Yockey is not a Christian. He is not a creationist. He says he's an agnostic in his writings. The definition of reductionism is the attempt to explain all biological processes by the same explanation as physical laws that chemists and physicists use to interpret inanimate matter. In other words, it's not going to happen. Sir Frederick Hoyle in Nature, Volume 294, said this. He said the likelihood of the formation of life from inanimate matter is one to a number with 40,000 knots. That is, zeros in British after it. It is enough to bury Darwin and the whole theory of evolution. If the beginnings of life were not random, they must therefore have been the product of purposeful intelligence. But you know Fred Hoyle, you know what he went on to say? Instead of appealing to God, he said that aliens created life on earth. That's what he said. Well, my question is, okay, if we were made by aliens, well, who made them? 
Well, they were made by a previous population of aliens. Okay, well, who made them? Well, they were sprinkled and made by a previous population of aliens. So you have this infinite regression backwards of aliens flying around the universe creating life. But the problem is the universe isn't infinitely old. We know the universe had a beginning, had a finite history in the past. So the question is, where did the first source of information come from? According to the principles of information science, it only comes from a mind. Fred Hoyle said this about the origin of life. The chance that higher life forms might have emerged this way, that is by chance, is comparable with the chance that a tornado sweeping through a junkyard could assemble a Boeing 747 from the materials therein. It's not going to happen. George Wald, Harvard University biologist and Nobel laureate, said this. One has only to con contemplate the magnitude of this task, that is spontaneous generation, to concede that spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Yet, we are here as a result, I believe, of spontaneous generation. <laughs> so he says it's impossible, but I believe it happened. Ladies and gentlemen, that's the definition of faith right there. The belief in things unseen and hoped for. And Francis Crick, the discoverer of the structure of DNA, said this in his book, Life Itself, page uh, 88. An honest man armed with all the knowledge available to us now could only state that in some sense the origin of life appears at the moment to be almost a miracle. So many are the conditions which would have had to have been satisfied to get it going. I did this presentation at this university and in the back of the room there were two very agitated professors because I was pitting the information science department and the chemistry department against the biologists showing that information-packed self-reproducing machines and molecules do not arise by chance according to those other departments. And this gentleman stood up and he said, we are scientists unless we can see it, touch it, taste it, smell it hear it or detect it with our scientific instrumentation, we cannot believe it exists, and therefore I cannot believe that this God of yours exists. Folks, when you hear that kind of an argument, you should love it. According to the philosopher Alvin Plantinga, he's a Christian philosopher at Notre Dame University, proving the existence of God is like proving the existence of someone else's mind. Proving the existence of God is like proving the existence of someone else's mind. The thing about the mind is I cannot see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, hear it, or detect it with scientific machinery. It's not detectable. Your mind is non-physical. If I attach an EEG to your head and I measure your brain waves, I'm not measuring your mind. I'm measuring the flow of sodium and potassium ions across a cell membrane which produces an electric current. Your, your mind is non-physical, just like God. Non-physical, non-detectable. And yet we know that the mind exists. There are many things that are non-physical that exist. Information is a thing that's non-physical, and it exists. So, I looked at the professor. I said, Professor, according to the principles of your objection, I'm not permitted to believe that you have a mind. <laughs> Can't see it, taste it, touch it, smell it, hear it, or detect it with my scientific instrumentation. He didn't like that. I said, Professor, is that reasonable? And he said, No. I said, I agree. If I follow your carcass around, in your case, carci, if I follow you around, I notice that you create order out of disorder, apply concepts to matter. It's obvious that your hardware, your carcass, is being driven by an intelligent mind. So when it comes to the existence of God, we must apply the same principle. What is more plausible 
You must ask it that way. That information-packed, micro-miniaturized, self-reproducing, error-correcting supermachines, which is what a cell is, arose by chance, not according to the principles of engineering, information science, and uh, chemistry, or information-packed, self-reproducing, error-correcting supermachines are the result of a mind, the result of a concept applied to matter. That's obviously the case. I want to tell you about a mountain, an incredible mountain that was discovered in uh, South Dakota. This mountain is the result of billions of years of wind and rain and lightning and earthquakes and um, squirrels burrowing into the side of the mountain. There it is. There it is. Unbelievable, right? Billions of years of wind and rain and lightning and and, uh, squirrels burrowing produce this mountain. That's Pastor Chuck Smith, by the way, of Costa Mesa. Now, could that happen? No way. Not a chance. Do we see the creator of Mount Rushmore? No. Is he hiding behind the rock waving to us? No. What do we see? We see the concept of the creator stored in stone. The concept of four faces stored in stone. We see the fingerprints of the creator stored in stone. And so Paul says, when we see the things that are made, we see the evidence of an information scientist. The evidence of an engineer in the machine-like structure of living systems and the the evidence of a vastly powerful biochemist when we look at the things that are made. So what's more plausible? That information-packed, self-reproducing, micro-miniaturized supermachines arose by chance or is it more plausible that they are the result of a mind? Paul says it's so obvious they arose from a mind that we are without excuse. And the Bible says that that creator stepped into time and space in the person of Christ. The creator that created you then redeemed you, paying the penalty for your sin debt. Because sin is a form of debt. He paid your sin debt, which was the result of the way he created you in the first place by giving you capacity of choice. He paid off your sin debt. This creator did. He revealed his infinite knowledge in creation, but he revealed his infinite love by paying off the sin debt of all mankind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and thank you for your word, for your creation, and for the incredible evidence, Lord, that you indeed are the creator of life on earth. And we, Lord, praise you and thank you that we can worship you with our minds. That indeed, as we look at the nature of the things that are made, that indeed science does testify that there is a mind, a creator, designer, behind life. And we praise you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you then stepped into time and space in the person of Christ and paid off our sin debt. In Jesus' name we pray these things. You're tuned in with the Underground Christian Network.